a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. I'm so glad you could join me today. We're going to be spending a little bit of time talking today about uh, one of the more divisive issues that, uh, well, can I put this nicely, more or less has uh, large swaths of American society at one another's throats. And that is the the cancel culture, the uh, the uh, tolerance warriors, uh, the church of social justice, if you will. In fact, I have an excellent article I'd like to start with. This is from John McWhorter from Reason.com. And more so than, than simply stirring us up, and you know, the idea here is, and I don't want to just share this with you so that you're like, oh, yeah, those social justice warriors, they make me so mad. I get frustrated, too, when I see the in-your-face violent, just profane and, you know, abusive bullying techniques that are sometimes used to uh, advance social justice. Yeah, it definitely rubs me the wrong way as well. And I think it's supposed to. I I really believe that the, the approach that's being taken is being taken specifically for the reason of uh, angering people, provoking them. And, and hear me out on this uh, because I, I, it's not to say that there isn't sometimes legitimate pain behind the activism that, that prompts such behavior, but the goal is to provoke people, provoke people, get them to suddenly lash out either in frustration or even in defense and then play the victim. Because at its heart, the, the social justice cause is all about victims, perceived, real, and otherwise. There is a virtue in victimhood that uh, is supposed to give a person who falls into one of the uh, collective victim classes power over the other people around them. And a person who comes to you and wants to use guilt, weaponized guilt, as a means of, of controlling you or shaming you or silencing you is usually not doing it for the purpose of, of correcting an actual wrong. And in fact, really, they're not trying to correct a wrong that you personally had anything to do with. It's more about gaining control over you. It may be through the words you say, through the thoughts you think, or even just, like I mentioned, trying to keep you from opening your mouth and saying, hey, this isn't right. And I think one of the, one of the best examples of this was there was a group of uh, Catholics uh, and there was a priest among them uh, surrounding a, a statue that, uh, that was being protested, since statue protesting is a big part of the, the, you know, the whole social justice movement right now, in St. Louis. And it was, of a, I believe, of a Catholic saint. I'm sorry, I don't have the name of the saint because I'm not as familiar with with the story behind the statue. But um, here are these people peacefully praying. And I mean peacefully praying. I'm not using this in the way that uh, the heritage media is using, you know, peaceful protesters today burned cop cars and smashed storefronts. Uh, Yes, (laughs) these people were actually just standing there, literally standing there praying. And there's a very powerful picture of a couple of uh, Black Lives Matters activists coming up and grabbing this priest as one of them takes, I mean, he winds up out into left field somewhere and punches this guy in the face who's standing there praying. 
And yet the press would have us believe this is peaceful behavior. This is, you know, they, they were they were justified in doing this. Why? Because of something that happened 400 years ago or 300 years ago that uh, their ancestors may or may not have been a part of. And that uh, presumably this this priest religion may or may not have been a part of the point being none of it had anything to do with any of the participants there. The guy who's standing there praying. I mean, he's he's praying for, for peace. He's praying for reason. And it was answered with a great big fist upside his face. They beat the tar out of this guy. And this is supposed to be acceptable. This is supposed to be, you know, how victims are supposed to act because their voices can't be heard. Except for the fact that the media, you know, is, is shilling for them and is is trying to portray their side as if, you know, somehow this is a noble and just cause that there's there's every bit of justification for them to engage in this feral and just animalistic behavior. It's pretty mind blowing. And so it doesn't it, if it makes you angry as it makes me angry, that's not surprising. But I believe it's supposed to. And the idea being, if we get angry enough, eventually we're going to lash out or we're going to say something rude or insensitive. And then voila. Now, look, we've revealed our true nature. We are the oppressors. So let's talk a little bit about some of the symbolism and some of the ritual behind the Church of Social Justice. This is an article by John McWhorter. It's in Reason.com. And there are a couple of phrases we're going to have to get into our lexicon here. One of them is third wave anti-racism. He refers to it as TWA, third wave anti-racism. John McCorder says, over the past several years, a social justice philosophy has arisen that is less a less a political program than a religion in all but name, where Christianity calls for people to display their moral worth through faith in Jesus. Modern third wave anti-racism calls for people to display their moral worth through opposition to racism. In the wake of the murder of George Floyd, this vision has been increasingly expressed through procedures, routines and phraseology pattern directly on the Abrahamic religion. Now, America certainly has work to do on race. For one, uh, I thought this was interesting. While cops do not kill black people more than white people, they harass and abuse black people more than white people. And he says the real impact of this is in its way just as pernicious as the disparity in killings would be. If the tension between black people and the cops were ever resolved, America's race problem would quickly begin dissolving faster than it ever has. But making this happen requires work, as will ending the war on drugs, improving educational opportunities for disadvantaged black children and other efforts such as steering more black teenagers to vocational programs, training them for solid careers without four years of college. Now, those are real things. Those are real efforts upon which we must behold scenes like in Bethesda, where protesters kneeled on the pavement in droves, chanting allegiance with upraised hands to a series of anti-white privileged tenets encanted by what a naive anthropologist would recognize as a flock's pastor. On a similar occasion, white protesters bowed down in front of black people standing in attendance. In Cary, North Carolina, whites washed black protesters' feet as a symbol of subservience and sympathy. Elsewhere, when a group of white activists painted whip scars upon themselves in sympathy with black America's past, many black protesters found it a bit much. Now, John McWhorter says these rituals of subservience and self-mortification parallel devout Christianity in an especially graphic way. But other episodes tell the same story. Many conventional religious institutions are now rejecting actual Christianity where it conflicts with third wave anti-racism teachings. 
at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. A chaplain was forced to resign after writing a note exploring the contradiction between roasting the police as racist and the Christian call for the love of all souls. Unitarianism has all but been taken over has all but has been all but taken over in many places by modern anti-racist theology, forcing the resignation of various ministers and other figures. This new faith also manifests itself in objections to what its adherence process as dissent. So say a friend on Facebook uh, wrote that they agree with Black Lives Matter only to have another person, a white one for the record, post this reply. Wait a minute. You agree with them? That implies that you get to disagree with them. That's like saying you agree with the law of gravity. You as a white person don't get to agree or disagree when black people assert something. Saying you agree with them is every bit as arrogant as disputing them. This isn't an intellectual exercise. This is their lives on the line. Wow. John McWhorter says this objection seems studiously hostile until we compare it to how a devout Christian might feel about someone opining that he agrees with Jesus's teachings, as if the custom were to think one's way through the liturgy in logical fashion and decide what parts of it make sense rather than to suspend logic and have faith. Okay, fair point. And the religious analogies pile higher by the week. Third wave anti-racism even has a metaphorical, you know, has metaphorical sacrificial victims. The New York Times food columnist Alan Ro- Allison Roman is on suspension for criticizing in passing Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen for going commercial. Her sin? Criticizing not one, but two people of color. Kondo's Japanese, Teigen half white, half Thai. Now, Teigen has openly said she doesn't think Roman deserves to be canceled for what she said. Doesn't matter. At the Times, third wave anti-racism must have its way. A great many intelligent people clearly consider all of the glowering postures, verbal laceration, and dismissals to be somehow in advance over how social change worked in America in the past. The seismic civil rights victories of the 1960s came about through protest, no doubt. But John McCorder says, absent in the annals of how we got from Selma to the election of Barack Obama is this focus on individual psychology as opposed to national, social, and political structures. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. We've got to take a very quick break. Doesn't that kind of spark your interest, though? Kneeling in the Church of Social Justice. I'll have this article in the show notes. You can check those out on lovingliberty.net. And we'll be back right after this. back. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Thank you so much for being a part of my audience today. We're talking about Kneeling in the Church of Social Justice, an excellent essay by John McWhorter and published on Reason.com. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Uh, Strongly recommend it. Look, if you have been feeling frustrated by some of the actions that you've seen, some of the violence, some of the rhetoric, some of the threats and so forth that have been playing out in the streets of America over social justice um, in the last month or so, ever since since George Floyd was, was killed in police custody in Minneapolis, this is a pretty good angle to, to study. 
if, if nothing else from the standpoint that you start to realize there there is a sort of uh, religious fanaticism that's at work here. And this is in no way a call to, you know, hate these people who are lashing out in anger. You know, personally, I, f- I find so much of this behavior just completely irrational and driven by mob mentality. And we'll talk more about the cancel culture and the, the cancel mob as, as we progress through this hour of the show. But it's so fascinating to look at it as an actual religion. And John McWhorter says, you know, Martin Luther King was under no impression that all white people were going to fully love all black people. He spent his time working for gradual change in the world as we know it via endless exchange and consultation with the powers that be, not agitating for some vague utopian concept of a society devoid of any racist sentiment. McWhorter says, no matter what evidence people find of King's fundamental radicalism, radicalism in his day wasn't centered around this recreationally aggrieved performance art. You know, the washing of feet, the, the incantations and the kneeling and, you know, the self-flagellation to show how sorry we are for, for what someone did in the past, much less obsessively seeking to excoriate and destroy people suspected of impure thoughts. He says the, uh, the TWA adherent might object to that today's, that, that's third wave anti-racism adherent, might object that today's strategy is a second step that the battle of yore was against overt segregation and disenfranchisement. But he says today, making an even more equal society requires this different approach. But why is all of this agitprop and joyous defenestration an advance over forging political change in ways that have had such effect in the past? Those of us watching incongruously and needlessly acrid media posts, the yanking down of statues, can't help thinking the real motivator of the TWA posture is a simple joy and indignation and destruction, along with the comforts of group warmth. Wow, that's a pretty accurate description. The white, third-wave anti-racism adherent cherishes displaying virtue. The black, TWA adherent, has fallen for the siren call of the noble victim complex, affording one the status of a Cassandra, a survivor, even the grantor of absolution as we see in some of the protest videos. Now, third-wave anti-racism people, to be sure, claim that all of this is ultimately about changing society. But McWhorter says, in practice, the, fr- the performance and the fury are the main meal, while the mundane but urgent work of changing society seems distinctly underplayed. One treatise on white privilege after another gives this away, such as Oslam Sensoy and Robin DiAngelo's Is Everyone Racially Equal? After almost 200 pages of teaching the reader that being a good anti-racist requires bowing down to any claims anyone not white makes about race, we assume that the final chapter might show how this counterintuitive ideology is supposed to change the actual world. But instead, that chapter simply repeats the the minatory mantras from the previous chapters. If third-wave anti-racism were really a political program, it would focus much more readily on making change from the grassroots on up. The psychological cleansing would feel like a prelude cherished by a few, but best gotten past as quickly as possible. The idea that political work must be preceded by a massive mental overhaul of the nation is not self-standingly obvious. It's a tragically fragile proposition that reveals TWA as, in essence, not politics, but Sunday school. And the third-wave anti-racism world might raise another objection, one that must be heeded. Without the fever pitch of these voices and the dread they instill in any white person chilled at the possibility of being outed as a racist in today's society, 
Tina Fey would not have pulled a few episodes of 30 Rock out of streaming because they had blackface depictions. The Dixie Chicks wouldn't have renamed themselves The Chicks. There would still be an awful lot of statues of Confederate races standing, and Rhode Island would not be exercising the, or excising rather, the word plantation from its full name. The TWA message asks whites to look inside themselves to examine the ways they contribute to racism, and this is happening to an unprecedented degree. Yet, he says, we can be quite sure that the third-wave anti-racist position on these things, no matter how many and no matter how widespread, will be to dismiss them as mere optics, as if such things weren't what they seem to be calling for in their furious policing of psychology. The new line will be that these changes didn't matter because they left structures of society in place. Now, he says this bait and switch will not be a cynical ploy, but an, inevit an inevitable outgrowth of the fact that third wave and third wave anti-racism is a matter of ideology and attitude, not progress and pragmatism. Its liturgy requires that America always be a racist snake pit, redeemable only by a mysterious day when the U.S., quote, comes to terms with racism. Now, just what those terms would be is never specified for a reason which is that if there really were no racism, the TWA adherents would lose their sense of purpose. No, he says, reparations won't do it. Look under the hood of the most prominent calls for reparations, and you'll see that they say reparations would only be a beginning. In any case, to be sure, names and icons are just optics. More substantively, third-wave anti-racism has helped create some movement in America's conversation about the cops, a problem central to black American sense of discomfort and dismissal in America. But he says there are two problems. One is that truly reforming 18,000 different police departments, as well as the Byzantine laws that quietly detour and destroy so many lives, will be a long, hard job for the kind of, for, of the kind King and his comrades so diligently and patiently forged. TWA activity, so focused on smoking out racist imagery, seems ill-suited to participate meaningfully in the actual on-the-ground toil of this kind. And second, he says we must ask, is it necessary for the cops to reform that a food columnist be suspended for dissing a half-tie model or that sincere Unitarian ministers lose their jobs? Because this is so very much a third-wave anti-racism moment and because its perspective has been creeping into the fabric of educated American society over several years. We're becoming desensitized to how ancillary to, civil, to civic process rather is this peculiar, furious, and fantastical indoctrination. We seek socio-political change, yet we find on the vanguards a contingent who have founded a new religion. And they insist hotly that they really are right because racism is bad, isn't it? Well, John McWhorter says, indeed it is. But it's also bad for increasing numbers of Americans out of fear for their social acceptance in wider society to pretend to subscribe to the, to the semi-coherent tenets of an anti-empirical faith feigning higher wisdom with big words and manipulative phraseology. They see themselves as the heirs of bygone heroes who would actually have been sickened by them. Progressive Americans' task is not to learn charismatic but purposeless self-flagellational routines, but to fight injustices with sense and logic. And only third-wave anti-racism adherents think the two are the same. Wow. Now, I understand you might need a, thes a thesaurus close by because <laughs> there's a pretty, pretty strong vocabulary there. But I think John McWhorter's uh, right on the money here. 
And, and I share this with you again, not to gin up any kind of hatred or other ill will towards those who are out there currently agitating for this third wave anti-racism. Just to better understand what it is that motivates what they are doing and, and above all, hopefully to keep our perspective so that we don't uh, just join in the fray because someone else is angry. Again, I love how Paul Rosenberg puts it, and that is, you know, there, there are people who bring a lot of anger to whatever cause it is that they are trying to advance. If you are, if you have found the truth, if you have found a better way forward, you've already won the most difficult battle. You don't have to go out there and go knuckle to knuckle with them. And you certainly don't need to bring more anger into a situation that didn't require it in the first place. So hopefully this contributes to some understanding. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Once again, welcome back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thanks so much for being a part of my audience today, whether you're catching us on the Loving Liberty Radio Network or any of the other fine platforms that to stream this show, or if you are catching the podcast, which it turns out is a marvelous way of enjoying this show anytime that suits your fancy. I appreciate you being part of my audience. I hope that I am bringing some value to your day and, and hopefully a little bit of perspective that you might not find from other media sources. It's I can't I can't stress how much of an honor it is to have the opportunity to get behind this mic each day and and to share some thoughts and ideas with the hope of helping people better understand the world around them to to see beyond the narratives that are that are being pumped at us 24 seven and at the same time to realize every one of us has influence that we could be using to improve the world, whether it be in big ways or small ways, we all have that influence and uh, the, the world really needs people like you and me to step up and do our part, whatever that may be. So we're talking about cancel culture. We're talking about, uh, you know, the, the social justice uh, war that is currently raging literally in the streets today. And there's a, there's a temptation that I think a lot of us have a difficult time resisting. And I'm going to just point at myself, first of all, as, as much as I detest cancel culture mentality the idea that ooh, someone said something that i find offense at let's dox them let's get them fired from their jobs you know if we can't uh, if we can't go physically destroy them if we can't punch their lights out in the street at the very least we ought to get them fired from their job and make them you know unemployable or make them a pariah within their circles of influence you ever seen this happen come on we all have and here's the here's the rub when it happens to someone who we really don't care for, somebody who we perceive as being on the other side of the political aisle or a political opponent, and suddenly the mob is turning their fury on them, is it not tempting to say, ha, I think I'll have some popcorn and maybe a Coke, and just sit back and watch the festivities? That is a mistake. And Matt Purple, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has an excellent article on this. And I love that he chose Woodrow Wilson as an example of one of the people whose cancellation we should not be cheering. And that's the title. Don't cheer Woodrow Wilson's cancellation. Now, for those who know American history, Woodrow Wilson presided over a couple of the things that have, have been extremely destructive 
to America. Number one, 16th Amendment. Number two, 17th Amendment. And he was just, he was the guy who got us involved in World War I. He was definitely of a consolidationist, globalist bent. The impact of, of his presidency and the things that he supported in the crowd, the circle that he ran with, is uh, it's still being felt today. And probably will be felt more as, as we bear some of the, the brunt of, of the Federal Reserve's uh, tinkering with monetary policy and, and the monetary supply and the debasing of our, monet, of our monetary system. So he's not a very sympathetic character to anybody who really understands and loves the principles and practices of liberty. But the, now the cancel culture mob is coming after him. Well, we need to, you know, we did tear down his statue as well. We need to smear his history, remove him from the history books. That would be a mistake. And here's how Matt Purple explains it. He says, first things first, Woodrow Wilson was a deplorable bigot and one of the worst presidents in American history. He resegregated the federal government, glamorized the Ku Klux Klan, screened the birth of a nation at the White House, and opposed Reconstruction and black suffrage. In common with many progressive intellectuals of his time, he was a champion of eugenics. He sank the United States into the pointless carnage of World War I. He viewed the Constitution as outmoded and sought to snap its restraints on executive power. Now, Matt Purple says, ideally, there wouldn't even be a perpetually congested bridge in Northern Virginia named after him, let alone a prestigious college of public policy. Yet now that college, the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University, Wilson's former employer, has announced that it's changing its name. And this is part of the statement from the university's board of trustees. Quote, the Princeton University Board of Trustees voted today to remove Woodrow Wilson's name from the university's School of Public and International Affairs, which will now be known as the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. We have taken this extraordinary step because we believe that Wilson's racist thinking and policies make him an inappropriate namesake for a school whose scholars, students, and alumni must be firmly committed to combating the scourge of racism in all its forms. Students at prote student protests at Princeton in November 2015 called attention to Wilson's racism, and we responded by forming an ad hoc committee chaired by Brent Henry's 69, Brent Henry, rather, of 69, to study Wilson's legacy at Princeton. The committee recommended valuable reforms to increase Princeton's inclusivity and recount the university's history more completely, but it left the names of the school and college intact. Students and alumni interested in, student and alumni interest in those names has persisted. We revisited them this month as the American nation struggles profoundly with the terrible injustice of racism, end quote. And Matt Purple says, okay, fair enough. This was an internal Princeton matter, and after a deliberative process, they reached conclusions they thought best for their university. The problem arises when we zoom out the camera and examine the political context. See, some conservatives have been relishing Princeton's decision, seeing it as an example of, ha, the left tripping over its own standard. You want to erase every racist from history? Well, how about that progressive Woodrow Wilson? Hey, what about FDR, too? Didn't he throw Japanese Americans into concentration camps? to which the mob in charge of the canceling is going to one day respond, okay, sure, see you at the FDR memorial. Now, Matt Purple says this isn't some kind of informed revisionist history effort swimming in a greater tradition, self-consciously opting for Crowley and Dewey, say, over Washington and Jefferson. It isn't about the left versus the right at all, or big government versus small, or America's founding versus attempts by the progressive intellectuals to transcend it. 
as George Will noted over the weekend, not using your intellect is the entire point. This is a cultural revolution. All you need is a single modern yardstick and the will to demolish anything that doesn't measure up to it. Think too hard and you'll spoil the fun. Bet you won't come after Wilson and FDR. And Matt Purple says, does anyone seriously doubt that they will? Last week, rioters in Madison destroyed a statue of an abolitionist who died trying to end slavery. The Emancipation Memorial in D.C., which depicts Abraham Lincoln alongside a kneeling freed slave, was prevented from defacement only by armed guard. He says this is a fool's game and conservatives shouldn't be trying to play it. Wilson was a lout, yes, but a far greater issue right now is the mindless, heedless, bloodthirsty, braying mob which is destroying indiscriminately, which is sowing fear at businesses and universities, which has no legitimate authority, which is addled by, as, as Elizabeth Powers puts it, the deconstructionist temperament. Rather than taking scalps of our own, he says, what the right needs is an arms-linked defense of our history, culture, art, and institutions. Imperfect, though all that might be. Does that make sense, what he's asking here? You do understand. He's not saying defend slavery. Defend policies that we now see as racist, though at the time they were considered part of mainstream thought. Why, of course, you know, black people will never be the same as, as uh, white people. I mean, Abraham Lincoln said as much. Instead of trying to view everything that came before us through the lens of how we understand the world today, we have to be a little bit uh, bigger than that and recognize that for the most part, these people who, who lived in a world where slavery was the norm, at least for, for those who could afford slaves, and where strict segregation between the races was the norm, were likely not doing so out of some deep-seated hatred or irrational idea that they knew darn well was wrong, but were simply trying to get along as best they could in the world that they were born into. I mentioned this before, and I think it bears saying again, they had their blind spots. Every generation historically has had its blind spots. And those blind spots are very carefully studied and examined and condemned by generations that follow. My point is, I think we are missing out on the fact that we have our blind spots as well. And I think that the day will come, I don't know, the halls of eternity may be a very long place at this, at this point, where we're going to be looking back and hanging our heads in shame for the stupidity and the blindness that we exhibited for things in our time that future generations are going to be shaking their heads or maybe shaking their fists and saying, how could they have been so short-sighted? How could they have been so foolish? I mean, beside the point, what came before has happened. We cannot change that. We can certainly learn from it. And I think that that's the reason why we should be defending our history, our culture, art, institutions, imperfect as they may be. Make sure we understand things as they were. Read books written by people of that time. Understand what the prevailing thoughts were. That doesn't mean that you have to accept them, but understand them for what they were and stop trying to twist them into what they should have been, you know, through, through the lens of what we think we know today. Maybe be a little kinder to them too, because someday somebody's gonna have their chance to judge us for our shortcomings.
All right, we are back. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Thank you so much for being part of my audience today. And we're talking a little bit about uh, the, the cancel mob culture the uh, the politically correct mob that goes out there and just delights in in its public stonings and some of those take place online i mean anyone who has has run afoul of the mob understands very well what it's like i mean there there's a very active effort to dox people to deny them the opportunity of being gainfully employed for things that uh, you know reasonable people could look at and say all right well maybe i don't agree with it but it's not something blatantly you know offensive you can't win when people are actively seeking offense. And trust me, there are people who woke up this morning and with, before they poured their first cup of coffee, they were focused furiously on what will offend me today. They live to be offended. And heaven help you if you are the person who happens to catch their eye. There's, there's a, a pack mentality. And if, uh, if you run, if you apologize, the pack will descend on you and it's, uh, it's not going to be pretty. But I have a couple of articles I want to share with you here in this uh, this final segment of this hour. One is from Sarah Downey. This is a very long article. It's going to take you some time to read. Nonetheless, I would encourage you, take a look at what she has to say, because this is one of the most thorough treatments of uh, the politically correct witch hunt that's going on right now and how it is killing free speech and why we should all take a very vested interest in standing up against it. And I don't mean duking it out in the streets. I mean, simply asserting your right to think for yourself and not being bullied into submission or bullied into silence. You do see the difference, right? I'm sorry. No offense to the proud boys out there, but guys going out there and, you know, brawling in the streets with Antifa, it gives you a great outlet for whatever aggression or anger or frustration you might be feeling. It doesn't accomplish a dang thing. Nothing. It just further polarizes people and further offers proof. See, we told you they were unreasonable. It's, it's crazy. Sarah Downey, and I'll have this article posted in the show notes on lovingliberty.net, has a, a, an article titled, This Politically Correct Witch Hunt is Killing Free Speech. We Have to Fight It. Listen to her first observation here. She says, it's only in a totalitarian state where everyone appears to agreed on har- agree on hard topics. Think about that for just a second. Uniformity of thought is not something you would associate with a free society. It's what you would associate with a totalitarian society. You have to think this or else. She says, if you look around and you see that, it means people are silencing themselves or being silenced. And neither one is okay. Now, in this case, Sarah Downey says, I've been silencing myself, but I'm done. Critical thinking, rational thought, and individual courage are how we escape the Orwellian nightmare we're heading into. Censorship and control is not acceptable, even in the name of social justice. And she says it's time to stand up. Having strong opinions, or she says have strong opinions rather, loosely held. Maintain that looseness so you can modify your opinions when confronted with new information that you deem worthy. That's the best advice you have heard all week. And if you're a listener to this show, I'd like to think you get some decent advice from time to time. Not necessarily mine, but the the stuff I'm passing along here. Have strong opinions, loosely held. Maintain that looseness or openness of mind so that you can modify your opinions when confronted with new information that you deem worthy. Or as my old friend Jim would have said, when I encounter new truth, 
I change my thinking. What do you do, sir? Sarah Downey says only a fool blindly clings to his opinions in the face of new, possibly conflicting information. Be a critical thinker, not a zealot. You have the mental fortitude to sit across from an opposing idea or a person who disagrees with you and hear it. It will not infect you without your consent. You can choose what to believe. These are some of the truest words that I have seen in a long time. But I'll be the first to admit, it's hard to do. And sometimes when you're listening to an opposing point of view, it is hard to really just listen without mentally, you know, start to rehearse. Okay, well, how am I going to counter this? And and you're, you're carrying out the debate in your mind, even as you're trying to listen and understand. By the way, if you've never tried this before, it's a wonderful exercise in, you know, how open-minded am I really? Sit down with someone who holds a strongly opposing point of view. You know, preferably you're sitting down in a, you know, a a nice, calm atmosphere. It's not shouting at each other across barricades or, you know, through masks on the street. But sit down and start talking with that person. And try to talk to one another without the goal of changing each other's minds. If you think, well, that can't be done. We're we're just, we want to change each other's minds. I know, that's the instinct. And yet I've seen it done. I participated in activities like this. And I can promise you, if you can bring yourself to ask questions that really start to, 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 to get into what do you really think or why do you think the way you do? And you're not asking it as a manifesto or as some kind of a gotcha kind of question. If you can do that without wanting to change their mind and without mentally rehearsing how I'm going to refute everything that you're saying, you will come away with a better understanding, a broader perspective of where they are coming from. And, and if they are of the same mindset, they will come away with a better understanding of how you think as well. And here's the best part. You're going to recognize that beneath that uh, ideology, beneath those ideas that, that where we don't exactly meet eye to eye, there's another human being. There's another person there who is every bit as entitled to their point of view as you are to yours. But as as Sarah Downey says, it will not infect you without your consent. You don't have to accept something that you don't agree with, but you can thoughtfully examine it. Isn't that what Aristotle said was the mark of an educated mind to be able to examine an idea without accepting it? You can choose what to believe. There was a quote from her article I wanted to share with you. Um, Yeah. She, I mean, she, she talks about a lot of different things in this article, but she says, over the past three months during quarantine, I started noticing the discourse change extremely severely. Fear crept in and made people accept what they heard from authorities and stop questioning messages. And the things that I'd been seeing made me feel alienated and unrepresented among a show that I'd been a fan of for over a decade. She's talking about actually, uh, I think it's RuPaul's uh, you know, show. So yeah, she talks about drag queens in here. I think the show is called Drag Race. She said, but uh, people were criticizing RuPaul for not being inclusive enough. Can you, can you, a drag queen is being called out by the Twitter mob and by the politically correct witch hunters for not being in line enough with, with their ideology. She says, I used to see multiple views on social media. Now I only saw one. It was like everybody online got a copy of the same script. 
She said, at first, the script was about COVID. If you don't stay home and you don't wear the mask, you are literally committing murder. And she says, I didn't agree with this overly simplified statement for a lot of reasons, most of all that it demands that people remain at home in potentially horrible environments. This was most applicable to poor people who are disproportionately unlikely to have uns- or disproportionately likely to have unsafe home environments or abusive family members or otherwise violent and unhealthy surroundings. And yet, mostly white, mostly wealthy, virtue-signaling people were shaming everyone into a unified behavior without regard for individual differences, without regard for the crushing effect on the economy, without regard for the fact that 50% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings accounts, and that a forced quarantine without work would bankrupt them. That's when she started questioning the, the narrative. She talks about how BLM was invigorated. She talks about the, the Orwellian nature of, of how this, this uh, group thought has really taken hold. It's, it's a long article. It'll take you a good 30 minutes to get through, but she covers this subject so clearly. And, and in the end, I'm going to skip down here to the end because I want you to know she has some great recommendations. She says, if you're afraid to take any public action, ask yourself, what would it take for you to do so? So if you have been feeling intimidated into where I better not speak up or I better not say what I'm thinking. She asks, what statue would have to come down? What book would have to be burned? What obvious scientific principle would have to be declared false? What common dictionary word you use every day would have to become unspeakable and a fireable offense? What person in your life would have to suffer for their old social media posts coming to light before you would speak up? Is there anything that would lead you to say anything? What do you care about enough to be uncomfortable and engage where you put yourself at risk for an ideology? And by the way, she lists some really good free-thinking people and resources who, uh, who aren't afraid to post their points of view. And she says, I found it immensely helpful to diversify my feeds with different opinions and people. Many of them surprised her because she'd been led her whole life to believe they were rabid alt-right lunatics. Turns out they're rational. Now, does that mean she agrees with everything they say all the time? No, but she's not threatened by that. The point here is that free speech is worth fighting for. Even if it's speech you don't agree with, stand up for those who hold unpopular opinions, knowing that they should be standing up for yours as well. And above all, don't give in to the mob mentality.